the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another episode of the Michelle Tafoya podcast. My next guest I've never met nor spoken to, but I've read his book. I want to read you one paragraph before I introduce him. We cannot keep idly pretending as if the difference between a Republican and Democrat in office is all that great and that a politician is going to miraculously save us. Power lies where people believe it lies. And so as long as we continue to believe it is with these selfish rulers and their dictates, we will forever be oppressed and dominated by their will. Will Witt, the author, joins us next. Welcome to the Michelle Tafoya podcast. So I've never met Will Witt. I've never spoken to him before. This will be a first. And I'm really excited because I'm deep into his book, Do Not Comply. He first kind of gives you this overview of how we are in decline in this country. And it's heartbreaking. Let me just read you one stat here from the book. During the time of the American colonists, roughly 90% were self-sufficient farmers able to provide for themselves and live a life of freedom. Today, 58% of Americans have less than $1,000 in the bank, and almost half don't have a net worth of even $10,000 by the time they die. And as we know, that has a lot to do with your freedom and your ability to do what you want. And if you have to keep going to the government to ask for help, for handouts, then you become reliant on the government and not on yourself. And this is a big part of Will Witt's book, Do Not Comply. I can't wait to share this with you. The guy's only 27 years old and he's this is not his first book, but it's extremely well-researched and it's very, very good. I couldn't put it down last night. I'm looking forward to introducing you to Will Witt, although some of you probably already know him. And one of the things he emphasizes is this book is not a Republican book. It's not a Democrat book. This book is a book about humanity. So I am excited for you to hear from him. In the meantime, do you think your face enjoyed this past summer as much as you did? Uh, I want to read you something from Ella from Rockford, Illinois. Quote, I have both age and acne spots, don't we all? And this stuff is actually fading both of them. This serum is worth every penny. What is she talking about? She's raving about the dark spot corrector from Genucel. It is a month, a must have after months of, of the record heat, the humidity. You have the sunspots, the brown spots, discoloration, all that kind of stuff. They all disappear in front of your eyes. Here's the thing. Genucel's amazing guarantee. You're going to see results day one or your money back. Day one. So take advantage of Genucel's most popular package, which now includes the dark spot corrector, plus the classic Genucel bags and puffiness treatment and immediate effects, all at about 70% off. You can try the best skincare on the planet, completely risk-free. All right. Did you know that Genucel offers a compliments guarantee? This is great. They'll give you your money back if you don't get compliments on how much younger you look. 
I can tell you that I've gotten those compliments. It's simple. Go to genucel.com slash Michelle today. Start looking years, maybe even decades younger tomorrow. Genucel.com slash Michelle with one L. Say goodbye to the dark spots, the liver spots, the bags and puffiness under the eyes, even crow's feet. Genucel.com slash Michelle. G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com slash Michelle with one L. You'll see the results day one and you'll get compliments everywhere you go. That's a guarantee. Genucel.com slash Michelle, genucel.com slash M-I-C-H-E-L-E. The new book is called Do Not Comply. The author is the, at the ripe old age of 27, Will Witt. It's a really tremendous book. I can't recommend it highly enough. He's going to join us to talk about it next. As I said in the introduction, this is my first time meeting Will Witt, speaking with Will Witt on any kind of platform. Welcome. I, I asked you how old you are because when you popped up on the screen, I thought, he looks younger than in his photograph. You're 27, Will. Um, this is quite an accomplishment, and this is not your first book, correct? Correct. Yeah, it's funny that you say I look younger than in my photo. My photo is actually about three years old. So <laughs> I guess I'm just getting even younger and, and better looking. But there you go, Benjamin Button, that, all the <laughs> exactly. way. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's remarkable, this book, uh, Do Not Comply. And I didn't know what to expect. I read First, I read the, the foreword by Dennis Prager, who's, a, a, I think, a great mind. And he's very forthright about the fact that you guys don't agree on everything, but about 98% of the stuff you do agree on. Um, the 2% could be pivotal, but what he says is he respects so much the work that you put into this. Talk about this book and sort of the, where it, what the genesis of it was, why you decided to write, do not comply. Well, thank you so much for that. And obviously, Dennis Prager, I worked for Prager U for five years. He's a mentor to me. So if you guys read the book and you're like, Oh, that sounds like something Dennis might say in some parts is because he's, he's kind of one of the guys who's inspired me more than really anyone else in the world. Even though, you know, he's Jewish, I'm Christian, and a lot of my book has a lot of Christian values, but he's still just one of the most brilliant thinkers on, on this earth right now. But in terms of why I wrote the book, um, I think the title kind of plays it out for us right there. Do not comply. What is it that all these people want us to do? They want us to comply. This isn't just COVID with lockdowns and masks and vaccines. This is the bureaucrats. This is the Democrats, the rhino Republicans. This is the, the big pharma. This is the teachers union, the big media, big tech, all these different entities want to turn you into a slave. And so I wrote this book essentially as what I would say is an antidote to these people's corruption, to these people's greed. How do we break free from all of the things that they are trying to make us comply with? It's about being an individual and standing for integrity all that you can. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. 
Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. When you use the word slave, that could inflame some people. That could make some people think, oh, how could you possibly use that word? You know, words are... Are, are, are toxic these days. You've got mm-hmm. to stay away from certain words. But what, what do you mean when you say slave? Well, Frederick Douglass said that to make a contented, contented slave, you need to have a thoughtless one. And I thought that that was pretty eye-opening when I heard that. And that what we have today is more of a brave new world type of slave than a 1984 type of slave. In the novel 1984, you have Big Brother coming down. He's watching every move. The people know that they are being watched. Versus if you ever read the novel Brave New World, it is positive reinforcement. It is positive reinforcement that turns you into a slave because you essentially can do anything you want. There are no consequences for immorality and any sort of thing that you could ever want. Someone provides it for you. Think about the United States. The United States spent $22 billion on welfare. I mean, it, we're, or it's 22% of our national budget is spent on welfare every single year. That's an abhorrent amount of money that we are spending on welfare, giving people handouts so that they can just sit around and do drugs and vices and all these kind of things. And then you look at a place like American colleges that are essentially just places where you can go and fulfill every, every vice and drink and party and sleep around and all these kind of things. We are building a brave new world where you no longer have a, a moral compass because morality is all, always subjective in the eyes of these leaders. And that's exactly what they want. They want to give you everything you need, make it so that you are safe in your little bubble. You get a trophy for everything. And in that case, people are never going to rebel because they're too safe to ever think about what is actually being done to them. It's interesting. There's one one line in the, the American reality section of the book, and you talk about um, America and much of Western Europe, for that matter, also lets in hundreds of thousands of illegal migrants and refugees, often from culture from cultures inferior to our own. And, you know, we are facing this immigration crisis in America. It is it is what's going on is is criminal in my mind, but not because I have anything against these people, Um, not because I have any thoughts about anything except for the cartels are doing this to us and our administration is letting it happen to us. But when you say that cultures are inferior to ours, I want to give you an opportunity to, to, to clarify what you mean by that. Right. Well, you think about some of the things that go on in the Middle East, uh, the way they treat women, the way they treat homosexuals. These are, I would say, are inferior to Western values of equality and liberty and and freedom that we have after the Enlightenment did a lot of that to the West. You know, there are obviously things in the West right now going on that I would say, hey, maybe the Islamic world has some things right, too. You know, it's, it, you can kind of look at some of the things. But overall, as a whole, I think that the Western way of life and and Western ideals are the way forward for the best way to live. You know, they're, they're based on, on Christian values. And for me as a strong Christian, I would say that Christian values are the best way that you should live. And if you don't align your culture with Christian values, then it probably is inferior. You know, you had in the, in the 1800s, you had the practice of sati, which in India, this was the practice of if a man died, they would burn his wife to death with the wife. Now, for me, I can pretty clearly say that that is inferior to the way that the West would do it in, in the way that if, if you died, you wouldn't burn your wife alive if you died, right? And so you look at things like this and you can say, okay, there are things that are different in other cultures and there are things that are better about Western culture. Not everyone who comes from a different place is going to be some worse person. We have plenty of terrible Americans and terrible Westerners, but overall, 
as a culture, I think that Western culture does it better than anyone else. It, that's that's hard to disagree with. Um, when you talk about this collective they, like they want to enslave us, they it clearly you're you're looking at the American government for sure. But you're not just talking about our government, correct? You're talking about like World Economic Forum. When you talk about that collective they who would like to have us all just contented, fat and happy and do whatever they say because we're getting positive reinforcement for it. Who is that they? It's so many people. You know, I was just reading this morning about alcohol companies. And I'm sure you guys have heard the idea that uh, having a glass of wine a day is actually good for you, these scientific studies. Well, that's pretty much fabricated. It's not really all that good for you. And you know who funds these studies? Alcohol companies. Alcohol companies fund studies to show that alcohol is really good for you. In reality, alcohol is not very good for you in the sense that it, it ruins your life. Many people's lives have been ruined by alcohol. Mm -hmm. And so I bring this example up to show that you have all these different entities, whether it is big pharma, the government, these corporate interests, uh, teachers, education, media, all of these different entities that are working hand in hand with each other and the World Economic Forum and BlackRock, major investment company, to make sure that they have total dominion over your life. You know, BlackRock owns $10 trillion in assets. They essentially have their hands in everything. To think that they are not playing their, their invisible puppeteer's hand in all these things that they own is, of course, the, the case. You know, and the dog that you have in the background, it hears, it hears the World Economic Forum and immediately barks because it knows it's an evil entity. He's, he, whenever the WF is on television, it's the same response. Uh, yeah. I that bark is... at Klaus Schwab as well. So I, yeah. I understand. <laughs> I get it. It was funny. As I was reading your book last night, you talked about, you know, if you, if you, if a dog does something wrong and you hit him, he's still going to do it wrong. But if the dog does something right and you reward him with treats, he's going to keep doing that right thing over and over again. That is so true. It really, it really brought that home for me as a, as a dog owner and disciplinarian. Um, BlackRock, this is interesting. Uh, you know, I, I often see the CEO of BlackRock on news channels, uh, business news channels, talking about whatever. Um, I do notice their advertising is very, it's borderline woke. It's like, uh, you know, aren't we great? We're looking out for nurses and teachers and all the, tell me what you know about BlackRock and it's sort of, because I, I do hear that, that, that corporation named a lot and I, I'm mm -hmm. ambivalent. I don't know what to think of it. Yeah. I write a lot about it in the book. So anyone who wants to get more information about BlackRock, which is essentially a financial firm that has their hand in essentially everything tied with the World Economic Forum with Klaus Schwab. But I'll give you an example that I think is probably one of the worst things. BlackRock pushes this ESG, environmental social governance, which essentially is kind of like a, a credit score for political actions that companies have. If a company has a large carbon footprint or maybe they don't totally agree with the trans agenda, then their ESG score goes lower and it's going to make it look worse for investors. So it's like a Chinese social credit score, but for businesses when it comes to political views. Now, they put this ESG on businesses and they say, you know, we're not racist. We want to make people not be racist, all of this. But what is BlackRock and other financial firms doing across the country? They are going into towns all across America, buying up single family homes and turning them into rental properties, making, making it so that you can never own anything again. You will own nothing and be happy. You know, the, the motto of the World Economic Forum, but making it so that people cannot own something. Now, if you want to talk about racism, what is the number one way really for people to build capital in this country? 
It is through real estate. It is through owning a home. So now you are buying up all these homes and turning them into rental properties where now an African-American, a Hispanic, someone of a, of a different race can no longer build that equity, build that wealth because it's now a rental and you're turning them into a nation of renters. It's the same people, you know, this hypocrisy of talking about, oh, we really care about racism. And they'll put these ESG standards to morally look like they're better than the rest of us. But in reality, they're going and creating a monopoly of real estate that makes it so that all people in America are down forever. And that's just one small example. I mean, it goes much deeper than that. It all sounds so sinister. And it all, I mean, it really, it, it sort of kept me awake last night after reading as far as I did into the book. And, um, and I know that you find a hopeful side of this too, but I, I want to go a little bit deeper first into this World Economic Forum. And what is their end game? I think the end game of the World Economic Forum is, this might sound a little dramatic, but it is to herald themselves as new gods of the world. Nietzsche said it best when he said, God is dead and we have killed him. What happens when you destroy Christianity and, and morality in, in the West? You have to have some sort of religion or system to replace it. Mm -hmm. So right now you have leftism. You have the ideals of the World Economic Forum that come and have that because humans are naturally religious. You go back thousands and thousands of years, you have humans praying to climate gods or you know old school Judaism and, and Islam and all these things. Humans are naturally religious. They will latch on to something. So if you destroy the Christian values in the West, then they still need something. That is where this comes in. That is where the World Economic Forum comes in, the leftism, these companies trying to push ESG, all of this. It turns you into a devoted follower of their agenda because this is what gives your life meaning. Think about the lives of young people. We talked a little bit about it. They don't have meaning. They don't have purpose. They don't have a sense of adventure or quest in their life. They, they grow up in, in these urban hell holes and answer emails all day and engage in every vice imaginable. And they don't have any sort of passion. So the leftism religion comes in and says, we will give your life meaning. We will give you something here. Go care about the world ending from climate change. That is your life now. Mother nature is God. Uh, the gender stuff. This is your new religion to, to latch onto this trans ideology. It is about creating themselves as these new gods. They are, they have this hubris that is almost unimaginable, um, within human history of these types of people and the power that they wield over others. I, I really think that it comes down to a, uh, trying to create themselves as gods on this earth type of mentality. It's, it's really bizarre. I can't even imagine that. Like I, I, you know, if you're a normal human, you're just kind of, wanting to live your life happily. But I, what you say about religion is fascinating. And I, and I, as I go along in life, I continue to see, you know what? People are naturally religious. And if they don't have Christianity or Judeo-Christian values of any kind, um, any kind of faith-based religion, then yes, they go to this, the, the climate crisis stuff feels religious to me. The gender ideology feels religious to me. The, the, you know, this fight for, um, equity and inclusion feels like a religion to me, but none of it feels real. Like, like it's, you know, I, I don't think that this gender ideology has anything real to it. It's, it's quite bizarre. It's like, it's like they're ignoring science. They're ignoring biology. They're ignoring common sense. They're ignoring, ignoring the notion of fairness while allowing biological men to compete against women. So is, am, I, am I hearing you right in that these are the new religions for our young people because we've 
essentially taken God out of the equation? That's exactly right. And you think about something like climate change again and the religion of, of green, as I call it. I made a documentary about this a few years ago. Um, but you have, instead of having the, the Messiah be Jesus or God or some, you know, faith that you are looking to, faith, hope, and love as you, as you would have in Christianity, it is now, oh, I am the Messiah. I am the one who is coming in to save the world. It's very seductive and intoxicating to people to think that, wow, this new religion that I'm a part of, I'm now the savior. Wow, that's that 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 is my entire life. I will base my entire life on this now because I am the savior of the world, not some god, not some uh, objective moral truths. That's not the savior. It's me. So when you have that be the case, it's very difficult to take people away from that mindset because it is all about themselves. I mean, we live in the most vain and narcissistic society of probably all of human history, especially with young people today. And that is because of this. That is because of social media. And it's because there is no objective moral truth for them to follow. Of course, there is one, but they refuse to or they haven't been exposed to it. So the objective moral truth, obviously, in, from your standpoint, comes from Christianity. Yes, definitely. I was saved two years ago. I grew up as a radical atheist, I, I, I call it, uh, for most of my life and, and have now since been saved and, and done a lot of work with, with my Christian faith. It's the most important thing to me. Why do you think you were an atheist? Uh, I explain that in the book, in the last chapter of the book. Um, it's I'm a not very... quite there yet. Sorry. Okay. Well, I'll, this... get, I'll get there. Trust me. It's, you the will. book is a tremendous read, folks. Uh, again, I, I do not comply by Will Witt. But go ahead. How did you become an atheist? Well, I don't want to give away too much because okay. to me, this is kind of the, the crux of a lot of the book on, on this writing. I tell a personal story about my childhood that I've never shared in public before and I've never talked about before. And it's something very near and dear to me and, and, and quite traumatic. But this event that happened to me and continue to happen to me was, was the reason why I became an atheist. I thought if God is doing all of these horrible things in my life, you know, how could he exist? How could my life be this way if God is really real? And it wasn't until later on in my life that I realized all of this was according to God's plan and, and I wouldn't change anything about my life. It was the power of Christ that has actually saved me from from everything that had, had once been. You know, I was raised, I, I don't want to make this about me, but I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that listeners can relate to this a little bit. Um, I was raised Catholic. Uh, I later left Catholicism and I became uh, Episcopalian. Um, as they described it to me, it's, it's Catholicism without the guilt. Um, my children were baptized Lutheran. I live in Minnesota, so that's fairly typical. Bottom line is we're a Christian family. But it's interesting because I remember growing up, um, there were these people that we used to call Jesus freaks that would go around and they'd try to spread the word. And this was like in the 70s. And I, I mm -hmm. think people remember who, who grew up in the 70s know about this. And now and then, there, you know, there's the evangelist um, section of the country, if you will. And I just I want you to explain to people why this is not or shouldn't be seen as an anomaly. I think people are are so afraid or or just turned off by someone who is willing to show their faith or wear it on their sleeve. I remember there were certain athletes when we knew we were going to interview an athlete in a post game on, on an NFL game or an NBA game. Okay, remember this guy's a real you know Bible thumper, so he's going to thank God first and all that. It, honest, to, those conversations were had, Will. Uh, and so why? Why why have we come to see that as something not okay or not cool? 
I totally agree. And of course, there are some of these people who are these evangelical type of people who I believe do it in the wrong way. They don't really do it from a place of love. They do it from a place of trying to shame others. Um, and I think that's how some of these people got that designate, designated name um, as these Bible-thumping Jesus freaks. I think that we need to be approaching people with love and not with shame because God is the one who judges these people, not us. I mean, of course, we can make judgments in our lives and, and do that. But at the end of the day, it comes down to God's judgment. Um, I think this has been looked at as bad in our society because of science, of technology, of how far humanity has come with these sorts of inventions. When you see that essentially the world is is being fed, Western medicine has saved uh, thousands and thousands of lives. We can now FaceTime someone from across the world, you know, tra we can see space on telescopes and, and travel with satellites and like all these different things make people not believe in God for the sense that, oh, how can God be real? We have, we have all this new technology that obviously shows that nothing is, is true within the Bible. But the thing about the Bible that I think people are missing when they're, when they're talking about this is say, well, there couldn't be a talking snake in the Garden of Eden. Talking snakes aren't real point is, is that it's not just a talking snake. The talking snake is, is the devil, right? It's, it's like we're looking for almost real world answers of how our science has been perceived in the Bible. And to me, that's kind of a misconstruing. It's not really congruent with, with what the Bible actually is, is supposed to be. These are things done by God that we cannot fully comprehend and understand. So trying to give them, I guess, worldly answers is not really the way forward that I believe we as Christians should be going to. Um, and I think that when you have a lot of, I guess you could say, these Bible-thumping Jesus-freak type of people try and justify everything with the Bible now with some sort of scientific mode or, or something like that, instead of leaving it up to conviction and faith, that makes us look like we care more about proving God is right to someone else than actually knowing that Jesus died for our sins on the cross. Does that make sense? A little bit. <laughs> it got it, got it. No, it does. I, I, I think what you said is like it, it, science is almost a religion now, too. Right. When, when COVID came about, we saw this. I'm going to listen to the scientists. I'm going to listen to the scientists. Well, that's fine. I mean, we thought that medicine could take care of this and we but the science isn't always correct. Right. And science is evolving. So you can listen to a science scientist today and he could be proven wrong in a week or a month or 10 years. So that was my problem with this, you know, follow the science kind of thing. It was it, it was evolving. So there were no concrete answers in science at any any specific time. Um, so that that almost became like uh, a religion. So I, and I think your your point about technology is really interesting. We we can see so much now. And we attribute everything to science. The stars became the stars because fill in the blank. The earth is this way because fill in the blank. Um, and, and yet anything that goes wrong, we tend to blame on humans. Like we're all just bad, you know, and a lot of that is true. But this notion of, um, you know, if, if things in the climate are going wrong, it's all human made it's all we're all evil and only the good people care about climate. It's it's just this weird. Gosh, we're so divided. <laughs> I'm all over it, the yeah. place here, Will, because I, I there's so much that is brought out in your book that that scares me. And so if you can, without giving away too much, share what we should hope, where we should find hope in in all of this, because to me, America is the last great hope. 
Oh, it definitely is. And I think we can find hope in Florida. I live in Florida, and I can tell you that this is a great place to live. I wish every conservative in the country would move to Florida and just have this be a new conservative bastion. But <laughs> other than faith in God is giving us hope, we can move on from that. I think that for individual people, what do you have throughout history with great strife, with great conflicts, with great war, plague, whatever it is, what do you have? You have heroes emerge in these times. You have great people of integrity and chivalry and sacrifice who rise up to the occasion to meet whatever it is, to tackle it, to bring it down, to save it. Even if the world around us seems to be failing and like I lay out in basically the first whole half of my book, it can make yes. someone very cynical. It can make mm -hmm. someone very cynical to see the world that we live in today. Um, but I hope that with the second half of the book, which I think you'll get to very soon reading this, but is, is really the hopeful part of the book that it's everyone has the power to do something. It's that old adage of, you know, not everyone can help everyone, but everyone can help someone. Everyone has the power to be an individual, to fight against these kinds of things. And at the end of the day, your individuality and your integrity is the most important thing. If the, the people at the, in the gulags and the Siberian work camps, they were getting beat to death and, and destroyed and their bodies were being broken, but their spirits, many of these people's spirits, they remained intact. They knew what was true. They knew what was right. They believed in God. They were individuals despite their bodies being broken. So despite the world around you being corrupt and destroyed, you can still have the integrity and values that make you a good person in the eyes of what actually matters. It's, uh, there's an interesting thing going on in my mind right now. There's the individual and what you can do as a human being on the planet. And it, to, to everyone, I remember Dennis Prager told me once, do good. That's why mm -hmm. I always sign off my show with be brave, do good, do good, because the only way to counter evil is by each of us doing any good that we can. It doesn't mean go save the world. It means, you know, don't hit the dog, smile at the grocer, thank the, the postal worker, you know, watch out for your kids, watch out for the neighbor's kids, do little acts of good will combat evil. But then there's this, this notion of the collective as well. Um, how do we how do we sort of merge those two ideas each of us taking care of ourselves our homes our families our children our friends but also this notion of it's there's a there's a collective good there's a bigger picture mm -hmm. well i think it's kind of like jordan peterson says where he says fix your own bedroom and then worry about the world right? If people get their own houses in order, then we can move on to the collective good. But if you have, like, think about the politics right now in this 2024 election. I feel like a lot of the people who are participating in it are bad faith actors, Republicans included. I don't feel like there's much goodness with many of the people running for office and many of the people who are working in the campaigns. It feels more like business as usual. It feels like politics is a business. They're not worried about goodness in this country. And so what I mean by that is that if we had individuals who could fix their own lives and start working on goodness the most that they can in their own lives, it's going to create a culture of people who want to do good, who then get together collectively to institute that good in society. But if you have people who are only focused on the collective before focusing on themselves, then we're not really going to be getting the things done that we need to get done. It's like people are always asking, well, when will the president change? When will America change? When will my community change? But they're never asking, when will I change? When will I do something to be this person who I want others to be. We're always looking for someone else to be good, but never looking in the mirror and saying, well, what can I do today to be good? If we all did that, 
I mean, think about the voting block and the, the, the courage and the, the amount of community we could have of people in America if we all put forth that we are going to be good people and put that above, oh, I'm going to be a Republican person. I'm going to be a good person. Right. Yeah, as you state very early in the book, um, it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat. It's, uh, it's about something bigger than that um, and that it, people on both sides are guilty of the same the same uh, oppressive sort of stances and motivations. And it's, it's, well, it's a, it's a tremendous book. I can't wait to finish it because I am at the point where I wanted to cry (laughs) because you're spot on. Here's the thing. When you write these first chapters, an analysis of where we are in America, you're spot on. I couldn't argue with any of it. So I'm, I'm, I got as far as I could before I fell asleep late in the wee hours. I can't wait to finish it because I'm looking forward to the hopeful part. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I really, I truly mean that it's, I hope we can have you back because I think there's a lot of conversation to be had here. Uh, And it's, it's so great to meet you and I congratulate you on a a really an important piece of writing that I hope a lot of people will read. Thank you so much. And I realize that in the book, you know, I hope that you reading it, you understand this. And I hope other people understand it's not just, another Republican book, you know, these ideas, the ideas that I try and put out there are for, I guess it's a humanity book. You know, I want it to be for people, not for just ideas. It's a, it's a book for people. I think that's a great point. And it's really an important point. You you don't, you don't favor one side or the other per se. You, you are, you're just looking at humanity and what kind of what we've done to this country and the way that we can rebuild the ideals um, of America. And that's, that's to me, uh, honestly, well, that is why I left my very lovely job as an NFL sideline reporter and sports reporter, because I just didn't feel like I could sit on the sidelines, no pun intended anymore, and not participate in what I think is a really important, not only conversation, but we need some action here. We yes. need to all form this coalition of courage to stand up for the ideals that we really believe in. And um, I think Democrats, independents, and Republicans can all agree on a lot. And the fact that we're not focusing on those things tells you where we are. We need to get back to that common ground. So um, read his book. He is Will Witt. You can follow him on all the, the channels and uh, the book, Do Not Comply. It's, it's tremendous. I congratulate you again, Will. Thank you so much. It really means a lot. Yeah. Well, good luck to you. I don't think you need it, but uh, until, need it. <laughs> until next time, folks, as I said to Will earlier, I always sign off this show with two, two little sentences, two thoughts. Be brave and do good. And we'll see you next time. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.